generation of Mennonite brethren uh, proclaimed the gospel and believed the gospel uh, and they thought that there were certain social entitlements that came along with it. So the first generation proclaimed the gospel and believed it. The next generation assumed the gospel and advocated entitlements. The third generation or the third generation denied the gospel altogether And all that was left were entitlements. The entitlements became everything. Unless we think this kind of slide into denying the gospel happens in in other denominations or in non-evangelical churches. One Christian author notes that amongst evangelicals, the gospel is rarely, if ever, lost in one grand movement of apostasy. It is gradually lost through small battles of attrition when the gospel becomes simply one priority amongst many and the church loses her way. The church must always be gospel-driven. We're starting a new series in 2 Peter this evening and over the next two months we're going to work our way through this letter uh, listening to the last words of Simon Peter uh, who was concerned that the newly established church would not lose her way. I suppose he knows that all it takes is for a generation to, to assume certain truths instead of believing in them. 
and then before the next generation comes and denies the gospel altogether. Now Simon Peter at this point is writing this letter um, as he's nearing his execution under the Roman Emperor Nero. And the great apostle was aware of the many challenges that the church would face after he was long gone. He was particularly aware of the dangers of false teachers amongst God's people who introduce heresies and bring the way of truth into disrepute. And so he's writing this letter. It's his final words. He's warning and rebuking false teachers. But alongside that is his encouragement to God's faithful people to keep growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Final words are important, aren't they? They can communicate things of great importance. Uh, typically, you'd hear university kind of graduation speeches. It's probably more common in America. They make a big deal of their, their graduation speeches, don't they? And one last pep talk before the students are released into the world. They usually get someone who's uh, been there, done that, successful in their field, a wise old sage, to, to give wisdom, to impart some wisdom to the leaving students about how to live life well, how to be successful. Well, in this letter, we have the final words of a dying apostle to these Christian believers who will need to brave the world of false teachers when he's long gone. And he does so in verse 12. That's his aim for us. Verse 12, he's writing to remind the church of certain things. Verse 13, I think it's right to refresh your memory. And in verse 15, I will make every effort to see that after my departure, that you will always remember these things. Peter wants the church to remember. He wants us to be constantly refreshed in certain truths, never to assume, but to be constantly established in the knowledge of Jesus, even when false teachers come on the scene. And he wants us to be established in the truth of Jesus so that when the false teachers come, we will be stable, never to be shaken. And his goal for us as Christians is spiritual stability, verse 11. Spiritual stability for the Christian believer, which will enable them to receive the rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in these first four verses, uh, Peter wants to, to remind Christian believers, firstly, that we have everything we need to live for God in this present age. And this great provision comes to us as we grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So verse 1, summon Peter a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Summon Peter. Well, these two names convey to us that Peter is writing, not just from his experience as the finished article, as the the rock upon which Jesus built his church. No, Simon is writing to us from his experience as a man who lived life full of ups and downs, full of denial and restoration. Uh, At the back there on the table, there's an A4 page, um, a short kind of summary of how to give your testimony. Uh, And helpfully, the first point is a testimony should be short about Jesus. That's a great point to remember, isn't it? A testimony should be short and about Jesus. I think Peter got the memo as we read in verse 1. 
You see, uh, the, the sheet at the back goes on to say, the difference between a testimony and an autobiography is that an autobiography centres on us. But our testimony should always centre on Jesus and what he's done for us. See, I think by using his full name here, Simon Peter wants to remind us of his testimony of how Jesus has transformed him into a servant and an apostle. Of how Jesus has transformed him into Simon Peter. And the word for servant can be more accurately described as bond servant, someone who, of their own choosing, submits their master for life. They give up any future possibility of release being set free because they recognise how wonderful, how good their master is. So Simon Peter is a servant. He's also an apostle. He's writing as someone who's been commissioned by the Lord Jesus. Simon Peter wasn't just an eyewitness to the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. No, he was, he was commissioned especially by Jesus to work with the other apostles in laying the foundation for the church. And in this letter, he's, he's writing to those who have received the faith as precious as ours. Isn't that wonderful? If you're here this evening and you're a Christian, if you've put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, then the faith you have received, the faith you now have, is as precious as the faith the Apostle Peter had. Now, Peter, who was there when Jesus carried out his ministry. Peter, who was there when Jesus was crucified on the cross. Jesus, Peter, who saw the risen Lord Jesus. Your faith is of equal standing. It's just as precious as his. How? Well, because both have received it from God. Our faith is God's gift through the righteousness of God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, the word righteousness can take different meanings. And one of them can mean a declarative righteousness. But here the righteousness of God is referring to the, the fairness of God, the justice of God. <clears throat> God does not favour anyone because they're an apostle or because they lived in first century Jerusalem. Any more than he does those who live in 21st century Cambridgeshire. The same faith that was available then is the same faith that's available to us today. Without discrimination. Our faith here at All Saints is of equal standing, is just as precious as the faith the Apostle Peter had over 2,000 years ago. God's righteousness means that he's always been fair in allowing anyone to receive the gospel and the offer of eternal life. Uh, one of the first phrases uh, children often learn to say is, it's not fair. It's not fair. Uh, right from the get-go in the early years of human life, there's an, uh, an innate desire for, for justice and fairness. Uh, I'm reminded of this every day as my two girls, aged three and one and a half, uh, tend to appeal to mum and dad for, for justice when the other is wrong. See, whilst the older child can plead for justice with her words, uh, the youngest one just looks to mum and dad pleading for justice with her facial expressions. That's what she can do for now. Well, on that day of judgment, when God calls all of humanity to account, 
no one will be able to say, it's not fair. God's justice, God's fairness, God's righteousness means that everyone is given the same opportunity to receive faith and to enter into a relationship with him. And verse 2, those who are in a relationship with God as his children have also received grace and peace. Grace and peace through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Verse 2 is our, our verse of the month. It's a, it's a wonderful reminder, isn't it? As we, as we grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus, we grow in grace and peace. Peter, he, he doesn't just want us to be content with receiving our faith. No, he wants us to grow in our faith, to grow in grace and peace through our knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And we can do so. It is possible. We can grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus because of his power and promise. That's the two wonderful gifts of having received the faith from Jesus is the power and the promise that come with it. Verse 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them, we may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So firstly, as Christians, God has not only given us a faith, but he's also given us everything we need to grow in our faith, to grow in spiritual maturity to grow in godliness. How? Well, it's through Jesus' divine power. Start of verse 3, his divine power. Uh, His divine power is what starts the chain reaction of growth in godliness in our lives. Spiritual maturity, growth in godliness, begins with God's provision through the Lord Jesus. We do so as we grow the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Which begs the question, what does it mean to know Jesus? What does it mean to, to have knowledge of the one who called us? Uh, knowledge is a key idea in this letter, and we'll discover this as we read uh, this letter in future weeks. And Peter returns to it again in verse 8, chapter 1, and in chapter 2 again. In fact, Peter not only opens his letter talking about knowledge, he also ends it by talking about knowledge in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. See, but I think we need to understand the type of knowledge Peter is talking about here. Here at Shelford, we're next to a university university city, a world-class one of that. And it can be quite easy to think of knowledge purely in a, in a cognitive, kind of intellectual sense, can't it? An amassing of information. However, the word Peter used for knowledge here, uh, in the original language, has more of a, a personal quality to it. It's, it's a knowledge that goes beyond cognitive to, to relational. Uh, in a scene from one of my favourite films, uh, Goodwill Hunting, uh, Robin Williams plays a kind of semi-depressed therapist who is trying to get his patient to 
to open up instead of constantly trying to uh, humiliate those who want to help him. And he, he wants to show how clever he is than other people. And in trying to help this young man, in a classic scene, uh, Robin Williams's character breaks down two types of knowledge. Uh, the cognitive, kind of intellectual type of knowledge, which uh, the young man has in abundance. He's a genius. And the experiential type of knowledge, which the young man completely lacks. Uh, listen to what he says in the scene, slightly paraphrased. He says, quote, If I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny about every art book ever written. Michelangelo, uh, you know a lot about him. Nice work, political aspirations, him and the Pope. But I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. Now, if I asked you about war, you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near war. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watched him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. If I asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a, a sonnet you've never looked at a woman and totally been vulnerable, never known someone who can level you with their eyes. You're an author, and do you think I'd know the first thing about how hard your life has been, how you feel, who you are, because I read Oliver Twist? Does that encapsulate you? Close quote. Uh, there's a difference between knowing something that we've read in a book and experiencing that thing in real life. Uh, we recently went to, to Paris, and we were fortunate enough to go sightseeing. And Now, I, I've seen the Art, Art the Triumph uh, in pictures and on the telly, but seeing it in real life is, is something else. It's just magnificent. Uh, even the camera that we had couldn't quite capture how magnificent this building was, this landmark was experience is fantastic, it's great, isn't it? There's a difference between knowing something, knowing of something, and actually knowing that thing. There's a difference between knowing of someone and actually knowing that person. And that's why you might often hear people say, I don't know him, but I know of him. As Christians, well, we don't just want to know of Jesus, we want to know him personally. I think that's what Peter is talking about here. It's a good question to ask ourselves this evening, isn't it? What, what encapsulates my knowledge of the Lord Jesus? Is my faith merely intellectual, sorry, intellectual, merely head knowledge? Or is my faith just merely experiential? All heart, on sleeves, without any time for sound doctrine. As a church family, are we to be proud of being doctrinally sound? Or are we to be those who are proud of having an experiential faith? Now, another way of saying this is, are we to be all head Christians, all head minds? Or are we to be all heart Christians, heart on our sleeves? It's a trick question, isn't it? Because we want to be both. Uh, we want to grow 
in knowledge, in the cognitive sense, having a right understanding of who God is, knowing that Jesus is God, verse 1. We are to know what makes our God different from all the other small gods. We want to be head Christian because we want to be able to spot false teaching when it comes. We want to, to be able to explain our faith to others when the time comes. But we don't want to stop there, do we? You see, we fill our minds, our heads, with the knowledge of Jesus, of the gospel, so that our hearts can be set on fire for Jesus, so that we can have an intimate relationship with Jesus. We don't just want to to taste the living water and spit it out. We want it. We want to swallow it. We want to, to let it nourish our bodies, our souls. We want to know the Lord Jesus in our heads. But we also want to know him in our hearts. And we want to have a relationship with him. It's a relationship, as we shall see next week, that's productive in bearing fruit in the believer. Secondly, in Jesus, the Christian believer has a great promise of participation. And we have a great promise, not, not to become God, but to be like God. What do I mean by that? Well, it means that we share in some of the qualities that God has. And it tells us in verse 4. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them we may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. As we grow in godliness, in holiness, we increasingly begin to to take part in the divine nature of Christ, who is perfect in holiness. This is a great privilege of the Christian life, uh, to, to be able to share in God's holy nature as we continue to put sin to death in our lives. As I close, I reckon a question that might be helpful to ask, to think about this coming week, is this. What encapsulates my knowledge? Lord Jesus. What, what encapsulates my knowledge of the Lord Jesus? Am I the kind of person who is content with knowing sound doctrine and being able to explain it to others? Or am I the kind of person who thinks I can only know Jesus through experience? And without the buzz, without the excitement, we feel deficient. Basically, do I, do I tend to be a head or heart Christian? Wherever we land on the spectrum, we want to, well, we want the Lord Jesus to help us see the beauty of knowing the truth about him in our heads and in our hearts. And we want this to be the case so that we can grow in spiritual maturity, able to to discern false teaching, as we'll see in later weeks. We want to be productive in our Christian lives, and so we need both to take place. We've not only received the faith, but we received the power from Jesus. He's given us all that we need to grow in our faith, to grow in our knowledge, in our relationship with Him every single day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
pray that you would help us to to grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Not just in a kind of intellectual sense, but also in our hearts. Would you help us by your Spirit to, to develop a deep relationship with Jesus this evening? One that shapes us in how we live, in how we seek to, to put sin to death in our lives, and how we seek to, to grow in, in grace and peace. And we ask that by your Spirit, would you be at work to convict each one of us this evening as to where we need your power to grow.